Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Okay, good morning listeners. You are listening to Green Left um, Radio. And it is a fine, well, it's not Friday morning, it's a fine Thursday kind of morning, but this is our second last, it's our second last program of the year. And I guess before I I announce, in terms of presents we have today, we have myself, Jacob. And Chloe, good morning, sorry. And Zane, hello. Yeah, and... um, just before I announce, I'm um, going to some of the news that we wanted to discuss this week. I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, getting, I guess, getting into, I guess, a bit of some of the headline news for this week. Uh, I would like to have a bit of a, a discussion about this is something that has kind of like dominated the kind of headlines of late and has had particular political kind of significance. Um, but in the context of um, the the war, um, the war crime, the extent of the war crimes that has been revealed by uh, in a in a recent kind of report um, committed by Australian SAS soldiers. Um, over overseas, uh, the Chinese government um, kind of responded with this sort of, I mean, this computer sort of generated or doctored kind of photo. Um, basically, I think the implication of the photo was basically cr- criticising um, Australia's role in Afghanistan. Now, what has been kind of interesting has been since this uh, computer kind of generated or whatever doctored image has kind of been posted, uh, the federal government has responded uh, quite sharply, I might add, uh, condemning China for, you know, being insensitive for using a fake image or or something and, and, and so on, and has, you know, basically done all, um, has basically, you know, threatened to cut trade ties, etc. Basically, demanded acting, an apology. Yeah, demanding an apology um, and so on. But I guess, I guess, one of the sort of outrageous kind of things about this is basically we've seen more we've we've seen more of a reaction from Scott Morrison over over mm-hmm. over China and actually just to describe what the image basically the image um basically depicts um Australian soldiers as threatening to kill a child that is sort of really that's sort of the implication it's basically and course actually that's actually a sort of in line with the reality of kind of what happened and of course i mean china probably has its own sort of political kind of reasons um for for wanting to do this and of course um it's not like china is is completely clean as a government either but i think it is 
focusing, I think, on Australia's kind of response, I think is very revealing of our government because basically the fact that they're outraged over what is essentially a fake image and the like, you know, demanding apologies, you know, there's, and there's all this, and the media sort of going crazy, you know, trying to stroke up kind of like anti-Chinese kind of racism in, in response. It's, I think it's, and also trying to play up a kind of sort of like nationalism, despite the fact that actually, you know, the, the federal government had, showed really no, they didn't show this level of outrage um, against uh, against the fact um, that um, it was revealed that SAS soldiers have been committing these, have been committing actual war crimes abroad. There was no outrage about that from any of our federal government officials. Oh, they just said that, you know, we'll charge, we'll, we'll hopefully charge some of the soldiers involved, but, you know, it doesn't represent... Uh, the SAS, um, you know, it's not representative of, of Australian values. Or, I mean, uh, I would be, I would disagree with that claim considering when you, um, when you consider what Australia was founded on, but you know, that's, um, requires a point. But I think, yeah, it just shows, I think, remarkable kind of hypocrisy from our own government. The fact that they've manufactured this sort of Fox sort of outrage over this tweet. And of course, um, <laughs> China's sort of response has been a bit amusing as well, where they've basically, you know, um, acute, um, have, they basically, in a kind of recent article I kind of read, basically Chinese officials had basically, um, slammed, um, Australia for barbarism and said it should be ashamed and a stinging response to demands for apology over a fake picture. So, yeah. Cartoon that's going around. I don't know if people have seen it and it depicts the hypocrisy of the Australian government pretty well by Christopher Downs and it's just a it's basically a, a cartoon of a refugee couple holding their baby and they're imprisoned by a barbed wire fence at Manus Island Detention Center and one of the refugees it's like in a talking bubble he says oh look China photographed a fake image on social media to try to tarnish Australia's human rights record and I mean, yeah, I agree that it, that's just really the government, the Australian government trying to confuse people and deflect anger onto the Chinese government rather than take responsibility for their role and, and conduct in these of this war and war crimes. Yeah, I saw that comic. That's a really mm. good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think the best way to avoid getting trolled about committing war crimes is to not commit war crimes. And Australia shouldn't, uh, the Australian government shouldn't really be that surprised that, you know, people are maybe doing, sending some provocative images. Like, what do you expect? Australian troops have committed war crimes and we're going to be playing, um, some audio from a forum, um, that looks at the background of the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, <clears throat> led by the US and supported by Australian uh, troops. And yeah, I think it's, it's really, it's really important to remember the broader context here is that this, this war was in response to a demon that was created by US foreign policy which is the Taliban and, and the Mujahideen who were armed and funded by the CIA to attack the uh, left-wing government in, in Afghanistan in the 80s. Um, 
who um, opinions vary about the nature of the um, the Afghan government in the 80s. Some people say that Russia invaded declassified um, Soviet documents after the fall of the Soviet Union show that actually Moscow was quite reluctant to send troops into Afghanistan and kind of had to be lobbied. Um, but basically, even if it was the case that uh, it was sort of a Russian invasion, at some point it's it's kind of up to Afghanistan that the people of Afghanistan to resist that and to build up their own kind of um, political kind of resistance to that and to push back. And what you instead had was the US putting massive amounts of money and giving huge amounts of weapons to the Mujahideen, arming and training people next door in Pakistan and then sending them in. And that was really where the Taliban came from. And then when the September 11 attacks happened, um, which were largely Saudi-backed, um, and, and Osama bin Laden and, and co were very had very strong links to the Saudi royal family, uh, there was no attempt to invade Saudi Arabia. There was no sort of political pushback against Saudi Arabia. It was like, oh, let's go invade Afghanistan. So that whole invasion, there was nothing defensive about it. Uh, it was a dispute between, you know, this kind of jihadist, um, Salafist kind of, you know, Islamo-fascist kind of group that, that the US had armed and funded and created and who then organised a terror attack in New York. It had nothing to do with Australia. We had no business being part of that. Um we had no, there was nothing defensive about Australia participating in the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And then, lo and behold, while people are there committing a war of aggression, an invasion of aggression that has nothing to do with the defense of Australia, people commit war crimes. Well, it's hardly surprising, surely. Like people are just being sent in to invade a country and kill people. Some of them commit war crimes. I think the responsibility overall lies with the Australian government for participating in that invasion. And yeah, China's hands are, you know, they're not perfectly clean. And there's some probably hypocrisy from China in, in getting on their high horse. But at the end of the day, um, the, the, the point they're making is a valid one. Australian troops did commit war crimes in Afghanistan and Australia should be ashamed of, of, of the entire invasion and the war crimes that occurred. Just another thing to note, um, just to um, kind of conclude, I guess, this discussion is I think it is reflective of, I think, something that is going to be worth following and something we're going to have to be conscious of and campaign against because I've already sort of noticed on Twitter in and on social media, there's just been, there's a large number of sort of, astra, um, you know, racist kind of comments um, against Chinese in response to this. Like if you even make an argument on publicly on social media, uh, criticizing the Australian government for its response, you basically get the response of, Oh, you're, you're, are you even loyal to Australia? You know, um, 
you know, you should just go move to China and, and, and there's no democracy kind of there. Like, you know, basically all these sort of overtly sort of very sort of nationalistic sort of comments, basically, um, you know, it's sort of, it, it's sort of clearly falls in line with, um, with what the Australian government is trying to push, which they're trying to push this sort of strong sort of nationalist push. Um, and of course, but of course, what makes that I think complicated, and I think this is something that's all well that I think we should explore, I think a bit more in a future interview as well, is that there is actually a trade war between uh, the US and China. China is a rising sort of capitalist kind of country. And there's clearly divisions in the capitalist class on who, um, who, where, where Australia, who Australia should be aligning itself with. Should it be China or should it be um, uh, the US? And of course, the US is facing kind of economic kind of decline at the moment as a result, I guess, of the COVID kind of 19 pandemic. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how these sort of dynamics kind of play out. And um, especially, I think, as left-wing people, we should be opposing kind of any kind of attempts by our governments to um, drive nationalism or to drive us into a position where we have to we have to stand, uh, align ourselves with um, with either the US or China. We actually have to stand for independence from um but of course we don't we're not for australian nationalism obviously but of course we have to resist mm. uh, australian nationalism and also these the strokings of anti-chinese kind of racism which was clearly a feature of what the federal government did earlier uh this year as the covid 19 pandemic was heating and also can i just add that's why it's so important that we also stand up and defend people like julian assange and any whistleblowers and journalists and lawyers who risk their lives re- revealing the truth about these wars and war crimes because um, yeah, there is a culture of immunity that's being considered normal. Um, it's been accepted as normal and the Australian SAS, just they're, you know, they're committing these murders and you know, there are so many people who just don't know that. Okay. Well, I'm just going to, I think we'll, um, um, conclude, I guess, this discussion and maybe move on to uh, another news story. You are listening to... Oh, yeah, if unless you have one comment you wanted to make? No, I think Zane... I think I interrupted Zane. Oh, Zane, do you have a comment you wanted to make? Oh, just to say that um, you don't have to be pro the Chinese government to oppose this conscious cultivation of, of xenophobia. And I, I think you're right, Jacob, that's... We've seen a lot of that in recent years. There's been perhaps um, the, the, the right-wing forces in Australia have put the uh, have, have focused less on stirring up Islamophobia and have started focusing more on cultivating xenophobia and kind of bringing back this red peril kind of thing. And uh, you know, every time there's um, a Chinese business or anything in Australia, Chinese students, oh, it's all to do with the Chinese government's, you know, takeover plans, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, you don't have to be pro the Chinese government to clock the fact that there's this cultivation of xenophobia happening and to vigorously oppose that. And I think we're likely to see more of it in coming years and it's going to be important to push back against that. Okay. Um, well, yeah, thanks for those comments, um, kind of Zane. Um, okay. So we'll conclude this discussion and, um, I think we'll play a quick, uh, announcement on FreeCR. You're listening to Green Left Radio. 
There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music matters. To the hip sister hop show. The heavy session. The Planet X radio show. Satellite skies. Shindig. Sweet dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we were just sort of discussing um, Australia's kind of response um, to um, to basically this um, doctored photo that um, China um, sort of um, post um, tweeted. Uh, I think from their official sort of Twitter kind of page, and sort of talking about having a bit of discussion about the hypocrisy of the of the Australian government in their response. Now, the next kind of thing I want to um, this is a, a news article in the upcoming kind of Green Left um, weekly. And basically, um, on November the 26th, and this is kind of reading on um, from from the article, uh, India, um, in India, India basically witnessed its one of the biggest organised strikes um, in human kind of history. And basically, more than 250 million workers and farmers, along with um, allies amongst the broader movements, which includes um, students, uh, feminists and civil society groups, participated in a nation kind of wide um, strike. And this strike um, coincided with um, India's Constitution Day, um, which commemorates the adoption of the Constitution in 1949. And essentially this comes in, I guess, in the background of a, of a kind of unprecedented um, attack on workers' rights and farmers' um, protections by the right-wing government of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And, of course, the protests um, by the um, by farmers and states around Delhi continued late into the night on November 26th and 27th. Uh, thousands of farmers um, have broken blockade after blockade, uh, marched into the city. Um, the police have used water cannons on them repeatedly but have failed to break their spirit. And, of course, the strike, just to talk a bit about um, how the strike I guess, is organised, the strike was organised by a coalition of workers and farmers movements with 10 national trade union confederations and the umbrella group All Indian Kasan Sangharsh, which I think stands for Farmers Struggle Coordination Committee, and which basically consists over over 200 farmer groups across India. And, of course, there was obviously... Um, um, women's rights groups, student unions, and various civil society organisations. And, of course, the strike was also helped, um, was built um, and received support with a number of left parties and several opposition groups. Um, to talk about some of the demands um, that have kind of been put, um, that been put forward um, and why, um, how the, um, what this stri- um, strike fought for, some of the demands that were put forward by the organisers include um, withdrawal of a series of laws recently passed by the Modi government, which repel key labour 
and farm protections, uh, a rollback in the recent disinvestment property policies and major government-owned enterprises, implementation of existing welfare screens for rural workers and expanding welfare policies to aid the masses affected by the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. And going to guess into, I guess, more detail. I mean, thousands of farmers, along with members of trade union groups and other movements from across India, also led a rally to the national capital of, um, of Delhi. And of course, the rally was met with fierce repression from the Delhi police who made use of a blockade, baton charges and water cannons to, to stop the march. And of course, yeah, so that's, I think, and there was also pro, there was also um, more interestingly, there was also protests also held a- across um, Jammu and Kashmir, which had be- has been under a virtual government-imposed lockdown for more than a year. And of course, this is in the context of repressive government policies um, um, making um, mobilising extremely difficult. So yeah, I think this is um, yeah a very um, I think expiring kind of um, general strike. Um, and I think yeah, more than two hundred fifty million is quite amazing. Although that's also in the context of um, the fact that India has a, a much significantly kind of larger population than probably most countries in the world, because um, I think it has over two billion, I think, or it's about one point three billion. Yeah, one point three billion. Like compared to Australia, I think Australia only has like twenty five million or something. Yeah, twenty five, yeah, million. And yeah, I but I mean by comparison. 250 million people in India, you're looking at probably close to 20% of the population participating in that general strike. That's a huge number of people. And to compare that to Australia, that would be like having a strike here and four or five million people participate. Like the recent uh, September 20 school strike last year, that was pretty big, big crowds of people, 100 100,000 plus in Sydney and Melbourne. Probably that's like half a million people Australia-wide, if you're optimistic, participated in the school strike last year, which is a good, uh, it was a solid turnout. Those are some of the biggest protests Australia has seen in the last sort of 50 years or so, I reckon. Um, So imagine a protest 10 times the size of that in Australia, and that's a sort of a back-of-the-envelope comparison to the size of these strikes in India. I think this is a really powerful um, protest, and it's it's kind of the scale of mobilisation that's needed to, to push back against the really um, authoritarian, fascist uh, Modi government. So that's really super inspiring to see. Yeah, it's really exciting, and it's. I think they're saying it's one of the biggest protests in history. Yeah, it is to do with the size, the population size of India. But despite that, it hasn't really been covered by mainstream media that well. Like, I haven't really seen many articles about it. Um, and yeah, I guess yeah, it's just a shame that Modi still enjoys so much popularity in India. Um, you know, despite you know, what they're going through with COVID-19, the, the social and economic impacts. Um, you know, he's he's just a very short-sighted, um, just terrible government. And, yeah, there's just so many people who still celebrate him. And, um, yeah, hopefully that'll start to change soon. But um, he, he does consistently frame 
the pandemic as this natural um, phenomena, um, like that that's not really within his control. So he's, yeah, he's just lying to the people. And yeah, it's just, it's just really good to see that this protest has taken place and I hope people keep fighting, fighting back. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to comment, I mean, I think, you know, there is actually a, a, a reason why Modi does have kind of mass support, and that mm. is, and it has to do with the particularities of India. And, of course, it relates a lot to the discussion. It's a universal thing, I think, across a lot of capitalist countries. Um, you know, Australia is actually no different. We we're just having a discussion about, mm. you know, how Australia is kind of like trying to kind of push this sort of nationalism in, in response to the kind of, um, kind of China. Basically, Modi, Modi enjoys kind of mass support because he exemplifies, um, a sense of kind of Hindu nationalism that, um, that appeals to the kind of masses population in, in, in India. And so that is, it's quite similar to also how Trump has been able to win support. But I think the difference between Modi and Trump is Modi actually has mass support but he also has a base that is actually mobilizing consistently and has significant influence over politics and it's based, it's it's essentially a fascistic kind of movement um so i think you know it's not i think you know the there's a reason why the left is um you know the left in india is is basically are uh, is you know argues very strongly against Hindu nationalism and basically mm. is pushing for pushing a secular kind of alternative. And so I think, you know, um, yeah, I think it's, it's not that much of a surprise that I think Modi enjoys popular support, but I think it is also a very, it's also very challenging material conditions for the left in India because, you know, while Trump in the US was bad, Trump doesn't even come close to having a mass base that is actually mobilizing on the streets in large numbers. Modi has that, um, has that base. In fact, he in fact started off as basically he started off his life being a rank and file member of the most fascistic um, parts of, um, of the BJP. So yeah. Okay. Well, we might, um, anyway, you can read a bit more on on this, um, and it's available on Green Left um, on the website. Um, what I kind of read from was basically described um, was a report um, from um, the the strike um, by, and I think it was um, printed in the People's Dispatch, um, which I think is a, I'm not sure if it's a, I think it's a left wing, I think it might be, what is it? It's a, I think it's an Indian India sort of base sort of left wing kind of um, thing that reports on. Oh wait, it's an international kind of media organization that basically reports on sort of different kind of protests, etc. Um, so yeah, I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement and we might just have one more kind of discussion and then we might um, play some pre-recorded kind of content. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Okay, you are, lis- you are listening to Green Left. 
um, radio and we were just having a discussion about the 250 million general strike um, that um, in India. Now I just want to go um, back to um, what's happening in uh, Australian politics. And basically there has, I guess, been a, a recent kind of report um, um, from the um, from the Guardian um, from basically um, there's a, a as a heat wave kind of hits Australia, um, polls have basically found that 71% support net zero emissions by 2030, um, which is basically quite reflective, I think, of of the level of guess of public opinion, and this comes, I guess, in a in a kind of political kind of context. Um, where basically Australia's warmest year on record was this last year, and everyone kind of probably experienced um, the the bushfires that kind of happened. And of course, the seven years um, from 2013 to 2019, um, as reported in this article in Green Left by Mark Gleeson, all rank in the nine warmest years. And of course, this long-term warming warming trend basically means that most years will now be warmer than any um, that have been observed during the 20th century. And, of course, there's a greater frequency of very hot days of in summer compared with earlier um, decades. National um, uh, daily average maximum temperatures on the rise in 2019. And, of course, there were 33 days that exceeded 39C, more than the number observed from 1960 to 2018 combined, which totaled 24 days. And of course, this come all comes from, um, a, I think, a, I'm pretty sure um, it, it comes with the findings of the sixth biannual State of the Client 2020 report, which was a report that was produced by the B, um, Bureau of Meteorology and Commonwealth Scientific and um, Industrial Research Organization, which is um, CSIRO. And this report basically synthesized the science informing our understanding of the client in and Australia and includes new information about um, this client, she's um, client past, present and future. And the, the unsurprising thing that this report says, and in fact, to be honest, I didn't, I don't think I would have had to have, um, have read um, the report to know this. Uh, emissions of CO2 from burning fossil fuels are basically the major source of increase, followed by emissions from changes to land use. And the other kind of um, thing is the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has reduced fossil fuel emissions in many countries, including Australia. However, and this is an important note, the report notes that the reductions have only been marginally slowed the current rate of CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere and basically barely um, distinguishable from nat natural variability um, in the records. And so, yeah, this is... Um, and despite, you know, all this, our government is still essentially kind of addicted to fossil fuels. And this is despite the fact that, as I sort of opened up with before, um, the majority of the population in Australia actually supports strong climate action and it actually demand, um, actually support that um, near, there should be net zero emissions by 2030. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you can read more um, about all this um, in an article written by Margaret Gleeson, available on Green Left, which is titled As Heat Wave Hits Australia, Polls Find 71% Support Net Zero Emissions by 2030. 
Yeah, I've been watching climate politics for and participating in it for some time, like probably 15 years or so, and it's really striking how much things have changed. I think public support for radical action to cut emissions just keeps growing and growing and growing and getting more entrenched, and you're starting to see stuff like the school strikes, which are sort of a, I guess, a... Um, when you have such high levels of, of strong support uh, for radical action, that's a breeding ground for um, the working class to get organised and start building quite um, radical and powerful formations like the school strike. And so that's that's rich with potential for further um, political protest and mobilisation. And then you're starting to see these cracks emerge in the capitalist class as well. And I think a, um, a growing number of the Australian ruling class recognise the fact that we can't just keep digging up coal and shipping it off to the world and we can't just keep burning coal like willy-nilly. So those two things are an ingredient uh, ingredients for, for radical social change because it, it means we can have big mass demonstrations and we can start to drive a wedge into the capitalist class instead of them wedging us, which is what usually happens with things like racism and xenophobia and sexism and homophobia and all of those things that the ruling class used to wedge us, we can push back and say, what are you going to do about climate change? Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the things about this is, I think the report, I think one of the crazy things as well is that, you know, we probably said this a number of times on a show, but the, the science is clearly there. Um, but we have to kind of, that we have to kind of take action now. The fact that, um, 71% of the population actually supports strong action actually lays the basis, um, for socialists in the left that we can actually build, um, this, the issue of the climate into a mass, um, into a mass movement because ultimately climate, um, we are all going to be impacted by climate change and climate change, the impacts of climate change are going to disproportionately impact on the most marginalized of populations. Um, so yeah, it's got to be, um, it's going to be very important, um, in the coming years that, um, to build mobilizations around the climate and it's going to be, even more important that we're going to have to keep fighting and pushing the government uh, to actually implement strong climate action. Uh, and in fact, just a funny sort of note, I, I went to um, I went to kind of an action in Geelong, um, Protect Our Future No to Gas, which was part of a national day of action on November 28th, which is basically um, rejecting the coalition's government-led kind of recovery plan. And one of the rallies, one of the actions I read to was sort of organised, I guess, by a bit more of a more mainstream kind of organisation. And it was sort of interesting. They sort of had, they had a speaker there who was, you know, part of a, um, part of a sort of um, renewable kind of energy kind of business. And it was sort of funny. Um, they kind of went on about their business and basically how they're doing all these sort of great things, um, et cetera. Um, you know, they respect workers' rights. That's one thing they sort of highlighted in their speech, which was a bit funny. Um, but it just sort of made me think um, it really um, reinforced the importance of actually demanding government investment <laughs> into renewables because basically the government's whole policy, um, it's been because there's two wings, basically, the capitalist class. There's ca- there's the capitalist class that supports um, that supports 
um, client action, but they don't support the government doing anything about it. They just think the market should decide, etc. Yeah, the Twiggy Forests, the Mike Cannon Brooks, the Elon Musks, this emerging sort of green capitalist uh, sector. And then there's also the other section of capital, which is basically we don't support climate action, but we think the government should be giving money to fossil fuel companies to keep protecting our profits. So those are sort of, I guess, the sort of two sort of tendencies. And I think this is where it's important that the left actually has to put forward the argument that, no, the market shouldn't be deciding this. The government needs to step in and actually um, intervene and actually we need to penalise the climate criminals for polluting our planet and actually use that to actually pay for a, a just transition from 100% renewables to having a, reaching at least net zero emissions by 2030. At least on the basis of it, I mean, the best sort of plan, the best sort of um, demonstration of that idea has been reflected in the Green New Deal that has been kind of pushed by Bernie Sanders and, Jer- um, and Jeremy Corbyn, et cetera, and AOC. So, yeah. All right. Now I, I think we'll um we'll play I guess a quick um a quick um I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to the next part of our program. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over fifty years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park. Give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first um, interview for the program this week, um, we're going to be interviewing Alex Boucher um, from Pride in Protests in Sydney. And he is a basically a lead candidate um, for the Mardi Gras AGM, this, um, which is coming up this Saturday, um, on the 5th of December. And basically he, there, it's a kind of, it's a ticket that they're running to just basically trying to push kind of Mardi Gras to adopt, um, far more kind of progressive politics. Because I guess despite the kind of radical history that Mardi Gras has had in the past, it has become a lot more commercialized in recent years. Um, so yeah, good morning, Alex. Hi, good morning. Yeah. I guess the first kind of question I want to kind of ask is I sort of just made a, a very kind of brief kind of reference to kind of the, the sort of radical kind of history of Mardi Gras. And I guess just to set up a bit of context for some of our listeners, what can you, I guess, tell us about, you know, a bit, a bit about the history of Mardi Gras, uh, and in terms of how it, how it's kind of started? Yeah. So I, I think one of the, the most important things to remember about Mardi Gras is that it started out of like the gay liberation movement and that movement in general has uh, like a, a pretty firm backing in uh, anti, anti-authority, anti-police. Uh, it, it has this very firm backing that was maybe out of necessity, but uh, the first Mardi Gras was quite prominent for the fact that there were so many people arrested Uh over the years, we've sort of seen this, like, move away from the radicalization of Mardi Gras. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that there has been a, 
a sense of acceptance by uh, the community of at least, you know, uh, white cis gays and lesbians. And uh, that that has just moved us into this territory where progressively the parade has become more and more corporatized. We we used to have, you know, these these parades as protest, and now it, it it is more along the lines of we'll see, you know, a, a float with ANZ workers on it, which is pretty far from the, the radical roots of Mardi Gras. But we'll also see the police marching, the AFP, the military. It's, it, it, it is a, it, it has been a slow slide into just this whitewashed and pinkwashed parade. And I guess going into, can you go into kind of a bit more detail about that? Because I remember, um, there's been a number of kind of news stories about Mardi Gras where I remember hearing that they had openly kind of banned um, sort of leftist sort of political organisations from having floats, or even if my memory is correct, there was even an attempt to restrict or censor um, a teacher's union kind of float. I think this, I remember this was being around the kind of safe schools kind of campaign. However, I'm not sort of, I completely don't, I'm not clear, I remember, on the details on that. And um, what can you tell me about what, what has sort of kind of happened there? And we can get into actually talking about your ticket up, um, then. Yeah, uh, so the, the teachers' union was, according to the selections committee, which is the, the committee that chooses which floats will be in, was apparently a mistake, and that was reversed. But uh, th- there has been a... Uh, a long-time policy of uh, choosing floats that are aesthetically pleasing rather than politically pleasing or, you know, uh, that represent the the glitz and glamour while not really representing any of the substance. I I think the the teachers' union is an interesting example of just, there was so much, there was outcry about that. Like, you, you can't have, you know, the police marching and exclude the teachers. That, that is completely unacceptable. And they reversed that decision. Oh, yeah. And so going into um, your ticket, Pride and um, kind of protest, what can you, I guess, tell us about this kind of ticket that you're kind of running uh, for the, I guess, the you're running, I guess, from um, for more security, you're running to be part of the actual committee um, that actually runs and manages the kind of festival. Maybe you can sort of explain a bit more of that on what you're, what you're sort of planning to sort of do if you were to kind of be elected. Yeah, so we're, we're running for the board of Mardi Gras. Uh, and one of the, one of the main things that we're, we're trying to do right now is get the, the police and corrective services out of the parade. We don't, we don't see it as appropriate that they are included. We think that the history between the, the LGBT QIA plus community and uh, the police is far too broad. And I, we also think that the present between the police and corrective services and the LGBTQIA plus community is far too fraught for us to be just accepting them uh, to use their, their, you know, once a year PR spot to, to march along the gates. And what can you tell us, I guess, a bit more about what are some of the kind of policies in terms of what is sort of your ideal kind of vision of what kind of Mardi Gras should be um, in terms of your overall kind of campaign and vision? Uh, 
Uh, a Mardi Gras that was delivered exclusively by Pride in Protest would be corporate free. It would be free from police and corrective services. We we have quite a few uh, motions that we put forward at the AGM, which are voted on by the members, which is uh, you know separate from the the board election, and and those motions sort of reiterate our uh, our commitment to left uh, left wing causes. So you know a motion in support of Black Lives Matter. Up until this point, we still haven't heard anything from Mardi Gras about Black Lives Matter or Aboriginal deaths in custody. Uh, Of course, our motion on removing the police and corrective services from the parade, uh, we want to get rid of the corporate sponsor ANZ. I mean, ANZ is an awful, awful bank, and that's saying something because most banks are pretty bloody awful. They... They continue to loan after the Paris Climate Agreement five dollars fifty to every fossil fuel uh, for, for every sorry five dollars fifty that they lend to fossil fuel companies. They lend a dollar to renewable energy, which to us is sort of unacceptable. But Mardi Gras has this like commitment, and I say that very loosely. This this commitment to helping LGBTQIA plus people in the region as well. And we don't see that as compatible with sponsoring someone who is leading very rapidly the charge in Australia to climate destruction. We've also got uh, a motion to remove Star Casino, which is another another group, which I think, uh, which is another company, sorry, that, that has just caused immense community harm. I, I'm sure down in uh, Victoria, there is, you know, some outcry about companies like Crown, who are, you know, they're in the news because of scandals all the time. With Star Casino, we, we think about the fact that there are, there are, you know, already way too many gambling venues in New South Wales. But to add to that, they don't report assaults. They actively like profit off a misery causing business. It's, it is to us like beyond the pale that they would be accepted as a corporate sponsor. And it is worth noting in uh, the board's rejection of uh, this proposal, they said that they would uh, condemn the industry of gambling whilst also keeping Star Casino as a sponsor, which I think is pretty laughable. <laughs> uh, we're wanting to ban Qantas from being a sponsor in the foreseeable future. That's that's another big thing that we're we're aiming to do. They have profited, again, off the misery of people through their participation in the uh, oppressive offshore detention regime. They deport refugees uh, out or the Australian government out of the country. And we see that as completely unacceptable, that that is not compatible with what Mardi Gras would call their long-term uh, commitment to human rights. One of the things that we get accused of with motions like Star, uh, uh, sorry, with motions like Star Casino, motions like ANZ, motions like Qantas, is well, how does it affect LGBT people? How does it affect them? And I think with Qantas, we, we've seen they have participated in the deportation of LGBTQIA plus people back to their countries of origin, where they would certainly face corporal punishment. And that is absolutely unacceptable. And the fact that, you know, unless it sort of affects the white gays, they don't care. That That is very, very concerning. 
we're also looking to get rid of uh, the Liberal Party out of the parade, and we want to sort of disinvite any of the leaders that are invited to the, the parade as well. The fact that we have people like Scott Morrison, who has been a vocal opponent of uh, same-sex marriage, who has, you know, tacitly agreed with things along the lines of, uh, you know, conversion therapy, it, it doesn't strike us as compatible with an LGBTQIA plus event to have people like him coming along. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian, we would, we would like her not to come as well. Uh, Gladys has, uh, not done a great job of rebuking Mark Latham on his bill in New South Wales to basically prohibit the discussion of gender identity in schools, which is the, the typical sort of thing you see from a lot of far right people who are trying to win a part of the culture war that they uh, are definitely losing. And from what we've seen, what is one nation policy one day is Liberal Party policy the next. There are two motions that are sort of regarded, uh, like they, they regard the the organisation itself and they're a little bureaucratic, but one of them is the price of membership, which right now it's $50 to become a member of Mardi Gras for a year, $40 for a concession. We think that that unfairly excludes working class people from participating in Mardi Gras. And the other is a motion on corruption within Mardi Gras. As you may or may not know, in, uh, it, last year we, we won the bid to become the 2023 host for World Pride. And the person who is currently the uh, CEO of World Pride is a board director of Mardi Gras. And the person who is holding that job did not go up against an open tender process. It was completely opaque. And now they're basically drawing a company, uh, drawing a salary from a company that they are a director of. They're, they're the eight motions that we've sort of got going. And yeah, I guess the next kind of question I sort of want to ask is, um, you sort of gone on a bit about, you know, what you're kind of demanding and, um, but I kind of want to just hear maybe a bit of your, your sort of perspective on what do you think, um, you know, this, with the kind of commercialization of Mardi Gras, the fact that it has kind of corporate kind of sponsors, et cetera, um, how would you sort of relate this to some of the broader kind of, political kind of trends in kind of society because, you know, there has been since um, the winning of kind of marriage equality, there has been kind of this sense of co-option of the LGBTIQ movement. Um, and do you, do you think this sort of, I, I kind of just want to hear kind of your comments on what does this kind of reflect more broadly? Because I think um, what I think you're doing um, in terms of um, trying to push to kind of reform um, kind of Mardi Gras is actually, think, an important kind of thing because I think it is actually tied up to, I think, a lot of struggles and resisting a lot of kind of broader trends uh, in um, in politics. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, it it is a long-term uh, problem that we're seeing with corporatization, and I think it has gotten worse uh, since marriage equality, which is... 
a statement that is fraught to say. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, the first thing is these sorts of events, these landmark events, should be funded primarily by government. They should be funded primarily by government because we shouldn't have companies either using this as their quasi HR department to, you know, celebrate LGBT inclusion one day of the year. We also shouldn't be seeing these companies using Mardi Gras as a time to uh, basically get in the good graces of LGBTQIA plus consumers. That's, that's the other big part of it. But like, I, I think that the entire trend is a little more insidious than just after marriage equality. I think it, it starts with the way in which we've privatized so many things in this economy. Everything is a service provided by a corporation. Everything is a service provided by a, a private third party. And the government sort of just becomes a, a tender operator, basically. We don't like that trend. We think that broadly, events that are celebrating groups of people should be events that are free from corporate sponsorship. The idea that these companies are uh, utilizing something like Mardi Gras for good PR, the idea that they're using them as a quasi HR department to uh, show off their LGBT inclusion to future recruits. That, that is, that is like incredibly, incredibly concerning and go, it, it is the antithesis of what Mardi Gras is supposed to be about. Celebrating inclusion and diversity isn't about careers. It's about who people are as their identity. And I, I think, you know, the, the broader the broader context of it is that in the society that we live in, there is a very strong move to reduce people to just being their career, when that is definitely not the case. And I guess um, in terms of how people, in terms of our kind of listeners, um, cause from my understanding, um, this sort of Mardi Gras AGM, cause you can become a member of Mardi Gras for $50 to, or $40 a year. Um, and I imagine this is a pretty kind of open process and you're trying to obviously campaign for kind of, kind of broader support in terms of our listeners, how can they, um, support, um, what your kind of ticket and campaign group is kind of doing with Mardi Gras? Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> so at this at this point, it is uh, too late to become a Mardi Gras director for this year. Uh, sorry, a Mardi Gras member for this year. But we are incredibly active on social media. We uh, do sort of rely on people sharing our, our content so that we can get it out there to as many different people as possible. Chances are that, you know, within the LGBTQIA plus community in Melbourne, there are people who will see our stuff. And if they shared that to their network, there's a good chance that they would at least have a couple of uh, Mardi Gras members within there. I mean, the Mardi Gras membership is a large group. So, like, it, there is a there is a chance. I think the other thing that is sort of important is getting involved in, like, local movements as well. A lot of things that we push for are, are things that, you know, like we're sort of the first to push for in a, in a pride sense around the world. But things like removing corrective services and the police from the parade, 
we saw Auckland Pride do that. We saw uh, Toronto Pride do that. Toronto, I think, or Vancouver. We saw, we've seen two prides do it before. And the, the more that we see these pride celebrations uh, moving to kick these uh, organisations out of their parade, the easier it becomes for the next group. And so when we start to see uh, different groups around Australia also making those moves, I think we start to have an easier time of it right across the country, not just for Sydney, but for, you know, whichever pride decides to do it next. So, yeah, get involved with your local uh, left-wing pride organisation and push these motions as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, Alex. Um, do you have any, I guess, concluding comments that you would like to make before we wrap up this interview? Uh, I guess, yeah, just just be aware within your, your local organisations, within your local events of the, the creep of corporations and the creep of security culture within them and do everything you can at whatever level just to rebuke that because it isn't normal and it isn't okay. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just accept that our future is going to be ANZ-sponsored prep. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Um, so you are listening to um, Green Left um, Radio, um, and I'll just go play a quick announcement, and we'll move on to the next part of our program. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Alex. That was great. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Right, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio. And we were just doing an interview with Alex Brew. Bruchet, um, who is from Pride in Protest, which is, was a left-wing ticket that is campaigning to reform um, Mardi Gras into a more progressive kind of direction. Now, the next kind of part of the program is it is about time for the activists, Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, these will be, some of these events will be online. Um, some of them will be available in person due to the kind of easing of kind of restrictions in Melbourne and also Victoria as a whole. Now, the first kind of event is, um, the there is going to be a protest in Ballarat, a client protest at 5pm in Stewart Street in Ballarat for any of our listeners who happen to live in Ballarat. Then on Saturday, there's going to be a public um, uh, online meeting with Bruce Pascoe, um, the client emergency and Indigenous land practice. Basically, this is going to be a facilitated discussion hosted by Green Left, and you have to book your tickets via Eventbrite, but you can get all the details on where to find that on the Green Left website. 
Then on Sunday, December the 6th, there'll be a protest, free the mat. Freedom from the Marcho refugees and the torture at 3 p.m. at the Marcho Hotel, 215 Bell Street. Um, and it's organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Then on Monday, December the 7th, there's going to be an online forum, Julian Burnside and Jennifer Robinson in conversation. You can, f- um, you can find info about this event on Facebook, but also it is also available on readings to find, um, Basically, to find that um, the details about that and how you can register and be and participate. Then on then on Thursday the tenth of December, there's going to be a hologram and in person rally. Seven years too long detention, free the refugees. Time for a home on Thursday December the tenth at eight pm at the Marchra Hotel on two one five Bell Street in Preston. Then on Friday, December 11th, there's going to be a tribute to Woody Guffrey at 7pm. Um, and if you search on Facebook online gig, a tribute to Woody Guffrey, you should be able to find the details for that. And then on Saturday, December the 12th, there's going to be a rally, Stop the Cuts to Job Seeker. And that's going to be happening at 1pm at the State Library on Swanson Street in the city. And then there's going to be another... That's organised by Victorian Socialists. And then there's going to be another rally, Seven Years Too Long, Free the Refugees, organised by Australian Refugee Advocacy Network. And that's going to be at 2pm at the State Library. Um, but I'll check the Facebook event to get more details, especially on how you can register to for the event. Um, then there'll be a pro, uh, protest, yes to renewables and jobs, no to gas, at 1pm at the Burke Street Mall. So, but this is a that kind of day of action, kind of promoting that. Anyway, we're getting into, I guess, the um, the next kind of part of the program. I'll just play um, a quick announcement, and then we'll go to the next part of the program. <laughs> A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now I'm going to play a recording of a talk from an online forum from Afghanistan to West Papua, Australian War Crimes. That happened on Wednesday, the 2nd of December, and the featured speaker and recording that we're going to be playing is a recording of a talk by Ubed Kabir, who is who was um, who tuned in all the way from Afghanistan. He is part of the Solidarity Party of Afghanistan, which is a left-wing party in Afghanistan that is campaigning openly for the withdrawal of all U.S. To, um, NATO troops in um, um, in Afghanistan, and he also 
is campaigning for a free and democratic um, Afghanistan. So this is a bit of an opportunity to hear from the voices of um, of Afghanistan, especially since they're being so marginalised um, by the mainstream kind of media. So, yeah, hope you enjoy his um, talk that he gave at this particular forum, From Afghanistan to West Papua, Australian War Crimes. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to Greenleft for arranging this uh, meeting and also especially special thanks to Mr. Peter and Jacob. Uh, sorry, I don't remember your second name uh, for uh, being in contact with me and arranging everything. Uh, well, I will not go into too much detail about the Australian uh, military crimes in Afghanistan because you're already in the picture and you know uh, a lot about it and most of the points has been already uh, said in the media and also in the court. Uh, just to give you a quick introduction that um, after Afghanistan was occupied by US and NATO forces, of course Australia was part of that and uh, these big countries who were part of the NATO and who were involved in Afghanistan, like 42 countries, they divided Afghanistan provinces between amongst themselves. For example, Australians had responsibility for Oregon, which is a south, uh, southeastern province, uh, southwestern province, and uh, for um, uh, Kandahar was given to Canada or uh, Herat was given to Italy and, uh, uh, or Mazar, which is in the north of the country, was given to uh, Germans. But uh, U.S., because they were the big boss, so they were present in every province and they had control in the major provinces. Uh, first of all, uh, because, for example, Kabul was mostly controlled by the U.S., or other provinces which had, had very lots of importance strategically or uh, they were earning a lot from it. For example, Helmand. Helmand is the uh, base uh, or the main source of opium for uh, in the whole Afghanistan. So uh, British and U.S. were always uh, trying to have control over this province. And then Kandahar was also very much important province and always Canadians and U.S., even they had fight amongst themselves to have control over these provinces. But them, uh, apparently they made a kind of uh, group or a, a committee, which they used to call it uh, um, Provincial Rehabilitation Team or PRTs. But of course, they want to have the control over the province and uh, so they can earn from it. Uh, in the media, we always hear that... Uh, like uh, more than $120 billion was given in form of aid and military to Afghanistan. But uh, um, and most of the time, most of this money, we can say that over 50% of m- this money didn't come to Afghanistan at all because they were making um, contracts with the big, especially U.S. companies, and most of the money was going back to U.S. This is one point. And then... Uh, most of the money was given, it was used uh, on by the military forces, like uh, uh, the figures show that uh, every uh, foreign military force in Afghanistan, they had uh, uh, around 15,000 US dollars they were spending every month on each uh, 
troop or and then the rest of the money was given to the warlords uh, just to give you example for example australia was investing on one of the warlords Matula Khan, he was from Oregon, and this uh, warlord, he used to be just a simple taxi driver, but within three or four years, he became the biggest uh, mafia, the kingpin, and everything in that area. Uh, apparently, he was the police chief of Oregon province, but he had control over everything. Like, he was the guy who was... Uh, saying who should be the governor of the province or not, because uh, the governor, governor post is more important than a police chief. But like he was the guy who was deciding who should have the control. And uh, there are lots of reports of the crimes. Uh, for example, on 15th April 2015, the AIM network, uh, they reported that Matiola Khan military has been involved in mass murder, rape, abductions of men and women and many other crimes uh, that were committed uh, that were committed by him and his men or there is another incident where he uh, killed 80 people uh, five of them by shooting and then with the rest of them they killed them with the uh, knives uh, in a meeting or other crimes that they committed so uh, uh, if i talk about the current the situation of Afghanistan, because Afghanistan was occupied in the name of bringing uh, liberation to the women and bringing democracy, bringing to, uh, justice and other beautiful terminologies. But in reality, if we see the current situation, uh, now uh, beside Taliban, we have 23 other terrorist groups active in Afghanistan. ISIS, uh, Aqani network and other uh, small uh, terrorist groups like from uh, Uzbekistan, from Tajikistan, from uh, other areas, they are active in Afghanistan and they are committing crimes here. Uh, and uh, the ironic point about is that that all of these terrorist groups, uh, either they are supported by the big imperialist countries such as US, uh, British, uh, Russia, China, or they are supported by the uh, reactionary regional uh, countries like Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, all of them, they have their own proxy uh, troops in Afghanistan which are fighting for their aim. For example, currently Iran and Saudi Arabia are fighting their war in Afghanistan. India and Pakistan, they are fighting their war in Afghanistan and other countries, like even uh, China and U.S. are fighting their war in Afghanistan. Russia and U.S. are fighting their war in Afghanistan. Iran is supporting Taliban at the same time, and then another group of Taliban are supported by the U.S. And then, so, the victim of all of these crimes, war, and bloodshed are the Afghan people, especially women and children. And uh, if you see the current situation that uh, because U.S. claimed that they will end up Taliban, but now we see from the, uh, as you already know, that there is a, a peace, so-called peace negotiation is going on in Qatar, in Doha. And uh, uh, we can see every day that Taliban are getting stronger. There are many reasons for that. First of all, these Taliban are supported 
by the foreign troops because uh, they want to justify their presence in Afghanistan. Because uh, you know that uh, most of the time the U.S. imperialist government to justify its present presence in a country, they all they always want to have a kind of uh, uh, virtual enemy. We have seen the example of uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq or other countries that the U.S. has invaded, and then they try to find a virtual enemy so they can justify their presence. The same is happening in Afghanistan. Uh, and because they want to end up the project of Taliban, now they are trying to do lots of propaganda for the ISIS uh, because they want to fool out their own uh, citizens and then they want to fool out the rest of the world that uh, Taliban are ending. But then another terrorist group is coming out and we should be there so we can fight against them. And uh, second thing that for the uh, Taliban to become stronger is the crime committed by the foreign troops. Just you gave the example of uh, Australian troops. The same is happening uh, with the Germans. They have committed crimes. It has happened with the French, with the British, with the Italians. Uh, some of them has been reported in the media or especially they have become reported in the international media, but the rest of the, them has been uh, there but nobody has talked about them. And of course, U.S., they have committed many crimes. So this is the reason that they want to push people towards Taliban. And of course, there is another reason, because there is a, uh, uh, we can say, lack of progressive forces and individuals in Afghanistan, because uh, most of them, uh, they were killed uh, during the Soviet Union uh, occupation of Afghanistan, most of them, uh, the Soviet forces or the Russian forces, they killed most of the progressive and leftists. And at the same time, uh, uh, the warlords like the jihadi parties, which were supported by CIA and ISI of Pakistan, they killed lots of intellectuals and progressive uh, forces and individuals. So uh, currently, that's the reason that there is a gap that Taliban can easily recruit people so they can continue their war. And then, uh, of course, uh, uh, now with the peace negotiation which is going on, uh, from the very first days when it was announced that Taliban are going to have a good peace negotiation with the U.S., we said that there will be no peace in Afghanistan until and unless we have the foreign troops in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, apparently the U.S. government is saying, especially recently, even uh, Trump announced that uh, they will be leaving Afghanistan. But we don't believe that uh, because uh, uh, they just want to uh, make an excuse because of the election which was going on in the U.S. So they want they just brought Taliban on the peace table. But uh, otherwise, they will be there. And we believe that the uh, foreign troops will leave Afghanistan uh, when our people will stand up and fight them. Uh, when we say stand up and fight them, we mean that they are represented and they are led by progressive forces. 
and not by reactionary forces such as Taliban. So this is the other reason that uh, uh, th- there will be no peace because until un- unless the uh, U.S. and NATO forces are there, uh, because they want to use Afghanistan as a um, ground against other countries such as China, Russia, Iran, and then they will not sit quiet. Uh, they already have their proxy forces in Afghanistan, and uh, every day we see lots of suicide bombings, we see lots of attacks on military posts and things like that, and uh, uh, they are supported by the other countries. They want to uh, have war here, so because they don't want to have uh, uh, their rival uh, country present in Afghanistan. So we always say that the U.S. and uh, other NATO countries should leave, in Afghan- should leave Afghanistan and additionally they should start supporting the warlords. Because even if they uh, leave Afghanistan but they continue with supporting the warlords, of course the war and the bloodshed and the killing will continue. And uh, on the other hand, if you talk about the government, our government or the Afghan puppet government is a corrupt government. Uh, every day there are news of corruptions, uh, but it just lasts for one day, one or two days in the news, and then everybody forgets about it. The main reason for that is that because the high officials, uh, including the president, uh, his vice presidents, and the ministers, all of them are involved in the corruption. That's why when there is a case of corruption, they try to make it quiet so people don't talk about it. Because uh, if they uh, bring or prosecute one corrupt person, of course he or she, especially he, will be talking about the other corruptions, which is happening at the uh, ministerial levels or other high officials. So everybody is just, they are trying to make everything quiet. And especially with this COVID-19 pandemic, which is, uh, has added much calamity and uh, bad situation to the, in Afghanistan because uh, most of the people in Afghanistan, they are daily laborers. Uh, so they earn on daily basis. And then if there is, if there is a lockdown or things like that, of course, uh, they, they cannot earn their living. So it has further deteriorated the situation and uh, like 600 million uh, US dollar was given in form of aid by the uh, US and the European countries and also I think Japan. They gave this money to Afghanistan to be used for fighting COVID-19. But uh, most of this money was embezzled by the and ministers and other eye officials. Like uh, at the start of the lockdown uh, in uh, June uh, 2020, uh, the previous health minister, he resigned from his post. And the main reason for that, but because he was involved in the corruption, so the government didn't have any option but to make him uh, resign from his position. But of course, with the new health minister, the things didn't change. He again, he belongs to another jihadist uh, faction, and then they continue with the, uh, what was left from the previous minister. He continued with the corruption and 
theft of the money from the um, aid which was given to Afghanistan. And then uh, I just want to go back that I said that the U.S. troops are not leaving, uh, and also the NATO group, uh, troops, they will not be leaving in Afghanistan, and there are many reasons for that. First of all, uh, they are earning a lot from Afghanistan. They are earning from the uh, um, from the drugs, from the opium. They are earning a lot. Like according to the reports given uh, by many uh, prominent uh, sources, uh, they say that every year the U.S. and the uh, British troops they are earning uh, from. As 500 to 600 uh, billion dollar from Afghanistan and around two to three uh, billion dollar is returning back to Afghanistan. The rest of the money is used by the US and uh, British troops. Uh, so this is one of their main source that they don't want to leave Afghanistan. And secondly, as Pep mentioned about the uh, mines or the uh, other stones and metals that we have in Afghanistan. For example, Helmand, uh, which is one of the most insecure provinces of Afghanistan, or we can say which is one of the most insecure uh, places on earth. And the reason for that is, uh, first of all, we have uranium there, and the British and US troops or they have their uh, proxy forces in form of Taliban or other terrorist group which has which have control over the areas on the different districts of this province and then they are extracting uranium from these areas and then uh, at the same time uh, the uh, land for cultivating opium is best in Helmand so this is another reason that they want to have control over the cultivation and over the trafficking of the opium in those areas. So these are the reasons. And of course, Afghanistan with the geographical location, which, is, which it has, like being with border with Iran, with China, with Russia, or even India and Pakistan and other countries, we say that Afghanistan is the heart of the Asia. So uh, when U.S. has... It's uh, military forces here. It means that it has control over Asia. So this, are, this is another reason that they are not, they will be not be leaving Afghanistan. And uh, other point that I want to talk about the um, um, current prosecution of the uh, Australian forces, I have to say that uh, uh, we believe that not only the Australian um, individual troops should be prosecuted. We believe that the government of Australia, especially the Prime Minister uh, who was uh, involved in sending the troops to Afghanistan, they should be prosecuted. Because uh, these crimes are committed not by individual. We believe that these crimes are committed by the system, by the government. Because they are the ones who are raising these troops to be so much heinous and to be act so much crazy. So uh, we believe that it is the government that should be prosecuted. And at the same time, 
And we always say that we differentiate between the people of Australia or any other country and their government. Uh, when it comes to Australia, we thank people like Julian Assange or with John P uh, Pelger, who are the ones, or with uh, a Green Left, who are the real voice, uh, who are somehow our real voices. Like they were the ones who spoke about the crimes which were happening in Afghanistan. We are thankful to you and also to the figures like them who always spoke on our behalf and on the uh, Afghan people's behalf. Thank you so much. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a recording of a talk by Yubid Kabir. I'm from the Solidarity Party of Afghanistan, which is a left-wing kind of progressive party, and he was speaking in Afghanistan, and he was speaking at an online forum that happened on Wednesday, the 2nd December, from Afghanistan to West Papua, Australian war crimes. Now, we're getting into um, the end of our program like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and stay tuned for next week because it will be the last um, regular program until the new year. So, yeah, hope to stay tuned for Beyond Zero Missions right now. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.